This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on now? What we're talking about is what the hell is going on with law school wokeness. So we, we were all outraged recently when we saw this incident at Stanford Law School where the Federalist Society chapter invited a judge named Kyle Duncan of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to come to speak on campus. And he was just assaulted and shouted down by a group of woke students. And then the, the dean for DEI who was present joined in, basically. They were shouting him out. They said that somebody told him they hoped that his daughters were raped. And she said, as I look out, I don't ask what's going on here. I look out and I say, I'm glad this is going on here. I mean, good God, this is one of the most elite institutions in the country, the legal institutions. These are the future lawyers that are going to be clerking for judges. Well, probably not anymore, but, you know, are going to be leading our legal profession. And, you know, they're acting like, you know, college sophomores. It's shocking. To me, this is more than shocking. Uh, this is more than disturbing. This is frightening. And that, I think, is is the problem that we all face, is that it's not so much that this is an ardent disagreement with people on one side or the other using intemperate or inappropriate language. It is that people are being terrorized and bullied into silence, afraid to speak their convictions, afraid to to talk about what they believe in, that undermines the very foundation of the United States, of our society. And, you know, our, our whole democracy rests on the rule of law and the idea that our legal system is impartial and that there are trained lawyers out there who will give everybody a, a legal defense if necessary. And you've got now this wokeness creeping into it, which is not just corrupting these law schools, it's corrupting our legal profession, which will in turn corrupt our society. I think it's important to talk about this for a second, actually, because we don't get into this with our guests, but I hear this increasingly. I was on Meet the Press last week, and my interventions were not, not amazing. I was a hot mess. Well, but our guests are used to that. My... <laughs> Yes, perhaps they are. Perhaps they are. It does happen occasionally. But someone in the group said, you know, more than 60% of Americans believe X. Isn't it the job of our political officials to follow what they say? I was thinking to myself, are you really saying that out loud? I mean, do you not understand that this is not a, a mob democracy, that this is not a mobocracy, that this is not even a direct democracy. This is a representative democracy. And in representative democracies, you don't go day to day and look at the polls and say to yourself, this is what the vast mass of the American people told Gallup. And therefore, I must do that. It's like, it is as if people don't understand how this country actually works. 
Well, I'll give you a terrifying poll number since you brought up polls. And I don't want to get into a sidetrack discussion with you about Trump. But there's a new CNN poll that shows that only 37% of Americans say that Trump's hush money payments to Stormy Daniels were illegal. 76% think that politics played a role in his indictment. And 60% approve of his indictment. I mean, think of what, what that means. Whatever you think of Donald Trump personally, that's terrifying for our country. That means that most Americans don't think he committed a crime, think that it's a political prosecution, but they're fine with it. <laughs> what the hell is that? Well, because what is fine for thee is not fine for me. And the problem is that there are all too few voices of reason who are willing to stand up. You know, look, you know what I think, and I, I'm with you. I don't want to go down the, the rat hole of Donald Trump's personal behavior and, and whether he should have been prosecuted in New York or anywhere else. But look at what Donald Trump said. Donald Trump then said, we should defund the FBI and the Department of Justice. And lo and behold, instead of other people saying, no, we should reform the Department of Justice. We should reform the FBI. You know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And by the way, you are not the litmus test of whether our justice system works. They all piled on as well. Yeah, I'm going to defund the Justice Department too. I mean, this is the problem. We are talking in this podcast about wokeness in law schools, but it is it's not even a matter of time. It's already happening that the kind of illiberalism that governs the extreme left, that suggests to people that it's okay to say to a judge, I hope your daughters get raped, is the kind of illiberalism that will animate certain parts of the right, you know, and you have the Marjorie Taylor Greens and others of this world who say just those kind of things to their opponents. What is happening to our country? But you don't see this from the right on law schools. I mean, it's just not happening. Well, you don't see the Federalist the Society right shouting down a left-wing speaker who comes in to represent the pro-choice position or something like that. That's just not happening. There's a huge a difference, and especially when it comes to the legal profession. Hang on a second. There is a huge difference. And I don't see the Federalist Society behaving in the same way that I do these DEI people in law schools. But that being said, part of the reason for that is because the left is the establishment at this point. Yeah, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have brought up Trump because now I've set you off on a, <laughs> on a rant. <laughs> well, you have set me off on a rant because I think illiberalism is catching. Exactly. So this is a problem because, you know, it's one thing. We, we've seen this kind of illiberal tendency in college campuses for a long time. We've seen our friend Charles Murray, our colleague at AEI, was shouted down in Middlebury and they almost, they actually injured him. There have been these incidents on college campuses all over the place. But this isn't a college campus. These aren't kids. These are adults. These are people who are have chosen to go into the profession of law and whose, the purpose of law is to have reasoned argument between people who have opposing views and present those to a judge or to a jury and allow reason and argument to settle the case. And if you can't accept the principle that there can be reasoned argument on almost anything that can come before a judge and that these things should be settled by reason argument, you have no business being a lawyer. And I just don't understand how these kids, or I shouldn't say they're not kids, how these adults 
get into Yale Law School, how they get into Stanford Law School. This is a failure of, I mean, maybe it's because we've been tolerating it on college campuses for so much that these kids have grown up in a culture of these elite colleges where they where this is considered okay, and then they get to law school and are suddenly told it's not. But I mean, this is an absolute indictment of the Stanford admissions office, legal law school admissions office. They don't even screen for basic commitment to the principles of the law. In, in admitting their law school too, because they're so focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion that they forgot to ask, hey, do you believe in free speech and the principles of, of the law in which our country is based? That that should be an that should there should be an essay required on that for everybody who applies to these schools. Danny, I said, Mark, what the hell are you talking about? The admissions committees at these schools are part of the problem. That's my point. The admissions committees are looking for people like this. They are validating that behavior. They are admitting people explicitly because they hold these views. The administration of these schools is part of the problem. If that woman who was the associate dean for DEI was not enough evidence for you that the school is part of the problem, this is not a student problem. This is a law school problem, not about admissions. Okay. They validate this because they believe the exact same things. They believe that, in fact, people have no right to speak, that bad laws shouldn't be enforced. That's, that's what this country has come to. It's this whole DEI culture, um, and it's infecting every aspect of our society. And the, the reason why it's most dangerous in law schools is because literally the law is the foundation of our entire democracy. And so if we infect the legal profession with this and it's already happening, then we're lost. But it's happening in almost every field. Uh, I was looking on uh, LinkedIn. Do you know what the second fastest growing profession in the country is today? DEI manager. That, that is the number two fastest growing job in America. The dean at Stanford Law School who joined in with the protesters, they're hiring her and her and her ilk in every com company in America. Uh, they are. You're right. And by the way, you are not going to be up for any of those positions. I'm just telling. You. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I was hoping for a new job. I want to talk a little bit more about DEI hiring, but I want to get to our guest. Our guest is familiar to, I'm sure, to all of our listeners. Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow and director of constitutional studies at the Manhattan Institute in New York. Previously, he was the executive director and senior lecturer at the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. Before that, he was VP at the Cato Institute and director of the Cato Center on Constitutional Studies. He is the author of a book called Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. And he has another book forthcoming next year that he tells us a little bit about. Here's our interview. Ilya, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. This is um, a little intimidating. And when I got the email, I was like, well, we've had people like Henry Kissinger and Mike Pence, and now we'd like you. I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> Danny's not very intimidating, so don't worry. That's right. I'm a person <laughs> Anyway, look, we were all very concerned and shocked by the events at Stanford University Law School the other day. And you said in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weekends ago that we're not alarmed enough that law schools could bring down America. What do you mean by that? Well, especially at elite law schools like Stanford, Yale, Georgetown, where we hear lots of news uh, periodically, not just once, but it's a, it's a pattern, it's a trend of illiberal 
behavior by both students, uh, administrators, faculty, uh, where these are our future leaders. I mean, the lawyers are disproportionately represented uh, in Congress, in state legislatures, uh, let alone, uh, obviously, the Supreme Court, uh, courts generally. Uh, the guardians of our legal and political institutions are lawyers, and, and these are the you know, the law students now at these places 20 years from now are going to be uh, controlling the levers of the commanding heights of these institutions. That, that, that calls for some worry. So let's talk a little bit about the Stanford case, because I think there's a lot of outrage, but probably not a lot of detail. This involved the visit of a federal judge who was invited by the school or by one of the organizations, accredited organizations within Stanford Law School. The Federalist Society. Yes, the Federalist Society, of where we have many friends. And he arrived and was confronted not simply by hostile students, but I think much more importantly by the school's director of DEI, Diversity equity and inclusion uh, with some extraordinarily inflammatory statements. Do you want to just give our listeners a nice little summary of what happened there? Right. So Kyle Duncan, the Fifth Circuit judge, similar to my situation at another California law school, Hastings, or rather the school has since since been renamed because its founder has turned out to have uh, done politically incorrect things by 21st century standards. Uh, a year ago, I had an event uh, shut down, shouted down uh, by students, and, and a similar thing here happened where the students were not allowing Judge Duncan to give his presentation. He was invited to talk about the interplay between lower federal courts and the Supreme Court uh, when it's a moving target like COVID and guns and social media regulation, uh, not uh, you know abortion, transgender rights, gay marriage, these these typical uh, uh, culture war so-called uh, issues, but the students were objecting to Judge Duncan's uh, couple of his previous rulings in, in those kinds of cases, as well as even more when he was in, in private practice, his representation along similar social conservative uh, lines. And they were uh, shouting all sorts of vile epithets at him. Uh, at a certain point, he's like, "Is there? can we get an administrator? Uh, can, we, can we calm this thing down? And uh, as you said, the associate dean for DEI, which is really an Orwellian term that means the opposite of those otherwise anodyne diversity, equity, inclusion uh, words, came up and with prepared remarks started haranguing the judge and basically said that I'm with you protesters. Now, we do have this free speech policy, which, by the way, maybe we ought to reconsider in light of the great harm that the judge's mere presence is doing here. But we do have that. Uh, and so you are you're welcome to speak. But just think about whether uh, the harm you're causing by your presence uh, is worth uh, what you're about to say or in, in her uh, somewhat colorful uh, uh, colloquialism is the juice worth the squeeze. And, and so it went. The, the protesters uh, uh, kept uh, disrupting. Uh, Judge Duncan sort of went, discarded his prepared remarks, went to Q&A. And there, were, there, were, there was a heated exchange, and ultimately the, the event ended without much uh, substance being discussed. Well, there was a similar event at Yale recently with Kristen uh, Wagoner from the Alliance Defending Freedom. And she was actually invited to participate in a debate with somebody from the left, and they shouted her down. Uh, one protester even yelled, I'll literally fight you, bitch, <laughs> at this person. And this is, a, this is the Alliance Defending Freedom. They might not agree with them. But they've won multiple Supreme Court cases. So, you know, this is the kind of argument that these lawyers, if they're even if they're on the left, are going to have to engage with at some point 
in their legal careers? Why would they not want to hear from someone who has a differing point of view in order to become better lawyers? The irony is even sharper than that. This was in in mid-March of last year, just over a year ago. It wasn't so much a debate as uh, lawyers from the left and right, Kristen Wagner from ADF, and then someone from a a secular humanist uh, organization, uh, who literally agree on nothing other than the importance of free speech. They were on one side in this student speech case, uh, and they were there to discuss uh, how to model disagreeing while respecting the other person's right to be heard. And this is the sort of event that was disrupted and shouted down by the Yale law students, you know, the best, supposedly the best of the best. You know, I, I went to the University of Chicago, so maybe I just don't understand that kind of high-level discourse. But it's it's been, I don't know whether COVID addled uh, uh, people's minds, uh, but it's disconcerting to watch these sorts of things uh, going on. And those are just the, the tip of the iceberg, what we can see uh, above the board that makes national news. Because really, uh, you alluded to my Wall Street Journal interview, I'm writing a book about this. There's been a, an illiberal takeover of legal education, uh, whether you talk about staff, faculty, student bodies, uh, that's really uh, led to uh, uh, campus cultures, law school cultures that are very different than even the one that, that, uh, you know, that I know from, from being in law school 20 years ago. The strange thing to me about a lot of this activity in, in law school is it's at once fundamentally disrespectful of the Bill of Rights, of, of freedom of speech, <laughs> Uh, the freedom to gather. It's also disrespectful of the rule of law and increasingly uh, also disrespectful of a lot of the things that law schools do, which is train lawyers to be both defense lawyers, but also litigators and prosecutors. Apparently, prosecutors have become public enemy number one. There was a piece by this student at Stanford Law School in the Washington Post. I don't know if you saw it. And she said the epithet uh, that the far left used to describe people that they disagree with is future prosecutors. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's, it's unhealthy to say the least. You know, the argument by such protesters, disruptors, I don't want to call them protesters because there is a First Amendment right to protest, which I fully support. If you want to hand out pamphlets or, or hold up signs as long as they don't obstruct the view of others or hold a counter event or, or otherwise demonstrate that the, you know, some, a differing perspective, that, that all uh, should be uh, well and good. Um, but here, the, the argument really coming from that side, uh, from the, the radical left or the illiberal left, as I like to call it, is that uh, certain views are too dangerous even to... Uh, be worth listening to. They're they're not worth listening to. The Overton window, the permissible range of uh, uh, permitted uh, policy views, has shifted and narrowed to such an extent that uh, you know what we consider to be mainstream conservative views uh, are anathema, are are you know uh, unacceptable, cannot be raised, are create. And here's where not just uh, ideological, but kind of therapeutic language comes in. It creates harm. There's an issue of safety. Uh, there are triggers relating to you know traumatic stress disorder. All of these weird psychological tropes that get imported uh, as justification for uh, excluding. You know, here's where the DEI comes in, rather than including for excluding uh, anyone who's beyond that very narrow and and rabid left uh, perspective. 
Here's the thing, though. It's one thing if this were happening on a college campus, which this happens all the time on college campuses. You know, sophomores are going to be sophomoric. They're kids. These aren't kids. These are adults. Some of them have worked already. They're training to be lawyers whose very job is to engage in reasoned debate and discussion. <laughs> if, if you can't do it in law school, how can you do it in life? I mean, you, you can't like shout down a judge when he's presiding over your case. I mean, what does this mean for the future of the legal profession? No, this is the paramount reason why it's so dangerous that this is indeed going on in, in law school, that the, the cancer has spread, as it were, um, has metastasized. Uh, the, these, you're right, lawyers are officers of the court. They're there to preserve the rules of the game, the American constitutional order, such foundational, uh, should-be non-controversial uh, ideals as due process, freedom of speech, equal protection of the laws, uh, all of these very basic things uh, without which it's simply uh, a survival of the fittest or might makes right or, or, or something like that. What, what these illiberal radicals are, are uh, militating for is rule by the mob. And sure, in, in real life, maybe they, they know that you can't behave like that in court, but maybe they don't. I mean, we, we have now this other polemic about the expulsion of state legislators who violated the rules of the, the Tennessee lower house uh, of the legislative house. You know, the, the, this sort of behavior that's not just indecorous, but actually violates standing rules. Uh, and we're supposed to let it go in the name of some higher good or because some issues are just too important to, to, to abide by the polite rules of society. And as you say, these are the future lawyers. Uh, who are who are doing this stuff. And, and remember, uh, the Monday after this disruption, after the dean and president of Stanford had apologized to Judge Duncan, the dean was teaching a constitutional law class, uh, and she herself was protested. Uh, apparently, she got to teach, but there was, you know, it wasn't disrupted. It was it was protested. Uh, I don't know whether that conforms with with school policies, but but uh, something like a third of the Stanford Law School student body supported that protest, apparently, because she apologized to the federal judge who had been shouted down. I mean, this is this does raise uh, alarm bells. These are not sophomores. These are people in their 20s or maybe even 30s uh, who in a few years are going to be arguing in federal court, uh, being uh, in-house counsel at Fortune 500 companies and and all the rest of it, or or maybe the ones who are leading this uh, charge, this this illiberal uh, uh, charge, uh, maybe the only job they're suitable for is at the plethora of burgeoning DEI offices, which are now well compensated and like political commissars spread throughout all of our institutions. But how did these people get into law school? I know Stanford, they said they're going to have like a half day free speech, mandatory free speech training, which is a typical left wing response. But you can't fix this with a half day of speech training. These, these are people who clearly should never have been admitted into Stanford Law School or Yale Law School if they have these attitudes. Isn't this a failure of the admissions process? Well, presumably they're smart enough. I mean, huge amount of applicants to Stanford and Yale, these top schools, um, uh, are capable of doing the work. Now, there are preferences based on uh, race and alumni status and certain other things that perhaps... Um, you know, there's a mismatch effect of uh, and, and, and resentments generated by uh, seeing especially members of racial minorities uh, disproportionately in the in the lower you know, quartile quintile of achievement. But I don't think that's what's going on in, 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 in these protests. I think the admissions offices themselves are complicit in selecting for activists, those who want to 
uh, change the world and dis display social justice bona fides rather than someone who just wants to, I don't know, uh, become a, uh, a leading uh, member of the bar and a corporate law firm partner or a prosecutor or a, a, a judge uh, uh, in the future. So there is some selection bias of that kind. Um, and more, there, there's something um, in how uh, these students are socialized in high school, in college, that even as, the, as they're smart enough, the their, their, their compass for judging what's appropriate and what uh, this Overton window and, and how to abide by the rules of society uh, are off. And uh, admissions officers and, and, and deans, once they're in school and faculty, uh, don't do anything to, to check those kinds of uh, impulses. So I just want to pull a little bit of a thread on this disregard for the rule of law, for the Constitution, <laughs> for... For the norms that, that govern not just these people's schools, but our society. Correct me if I'm wrong. What I see is that there is a direct line from these kind of students who stifle the free speech of others, who don't have any regard for a legitimate debate, who view certain topics as off limits, undiscussable, and prosecutors and district's attorney in big cities who are now announcing that they are not going to enforce the law. They are not going to cooperate with federal immigration authorities. They are not going to cooperate with sentencing guidelines. They are not going to support the arrest. And if they are arrested, the detention or prosecution of people who commit, for example, misdemeanors or drug-related crimes. Uh, isn't, I mean, aren't we training more of those people Yes, in a word, uh, and people like Ron Wyden, a senator from Oregon, who uh, advised the uh, Biden administration to ignore the federal judge's ruling against the abortion uh, medication. Uh, you know, there might be problems with that rulings. I see some weaknesses, but you know, rather than going through the process where you know they're ignoring judicial rulings, I mean, lawlessness, uh, quite literally, uh, and this is coming from lawyers. Uh, that's right, because they think that they. They're the, they're the holders of the keys to the temple, as, as it were, those being the right ideas. And uh, some things just are too important to, to abide by these, these rules, which, after all, were set up by the white supremacist uh, patriarchy, etc., etc. Et it's a very postmodern, critical legal studies, uh, of which critical race theory is a subset, uh, view of uh, the operation of the law. Ilya, I'm trying to figure out where this, this leads us. It leads us to despotism. It leads us to a society without laws, with the, the laws that our system has agreed on that have been duly you know, put into place by duly elected and confirmed or duly appointed members of, of government, whether state or local or federal. It, it makes a mockery of all of that. Where do we end up? No, you're absolutely right. This is why I'm so concerned. Uh, this is why this is such a worrying trend, uh, which perhaps I had realized, but until I myself was in the Star Chamber with Georgetown a year ago, having that, that lived experience, I hadn't fully appreciated, I, I think. And plus, it's kind of uh, you know, increased. Uh, the, 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 the tensions uh, have, have increased ever since. Uh, this, is, this leads to tribalism. It's mob rule. It's... Um, it's you know putting Socrates to death. Uh, this is, is really is really worrisome. This is not the decades-old conservative complaint about 
uh, liberals taking over the faculty lounge, you know, going back to Berkeley in the 60s or, or what have you. Uh, this is illiberals. This is those who uh, do not cotton to the rules of the game, who think that, uh, you know, the, the be-all and end-all, the, 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 the great truths as they see them, can, you know, are, there, there's, there cannot be any discussion about that. And if you disagree, then um, all bets are off. You're, you're an outlaw. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right to be uh, uh, alarmed. Uh, and, you know, I put, I put the, uh, the blame uh, at the, the so-called adults, the, the more adults, because, of course, these law students are adults. Uh, many college students are adults, most, uh, in terms of being over age 18. But the deans and the administrators and the presidents and the provosts, uh, they, they kowtow uh, to this illiberal mob. Mo- most university administrators are not, you know, setting aside the DEI offices, uh, but most you know, deans of law schools are not woke radicals. They're spineless cowards. They're careerist bureaucrats who have climbed the greasy pole, and they see it now advantageous to uh, give in to these trendy uh, uh, mob actions, uh, as it were, and, and empower the, the DEI uh, administrators. Um, uh, they ha- I think we need exogenous shocks. Reform for within is, is doubtful, given the ideological makeup of the faculties. That's a separate uh, issue. Uh, and that's why, you know, whether from employers or judges like Judge Ho and, and Branch have announced, have now added Stanford to, uh, to Yale in their boycott of, of clerkship hiring. Um, uh, you know, I, I think it, the, the press uh, attention, the, 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 the exposure of you know, use hiring by diversity statement rather than merit. Um, I've seen bright lights, actually. I mean, when, when these things are exposed, when university officials are shamed publicly in that way, uh, they change. And so some of these structures and institutions are, to mix metaphors, Potemkin villages guarded by paper tigers. But uh, we're nowhere near uh, the beginning of the end. Uh, maybe uh, we'll look back at this moment as being the end of the beginning. Ilya, you mentioned your experience at Georgetown. Some of our listeners might not be familiar with what happened to you. Can you uh, can you give us a brief summary of what they did? Sure. I, I had been at at Cato for nearly 15 years, the Cato Institute, a large libertarian think tank in Washington. Uh, I'd been director of constitutional studies and vice president there. I decided to take my career in a, in a different direction. Um, I was thinking about uh, having a different kind of impact. I uh, got an offer from, uh, from Randy Barnett, professor at Georgetown Law School, one of the leading uh, libertarian law professors uh, in the country. And, and Dean Bill Trainer there was enthusiastic about Adding me is uh, become the I guess the fourth uh, of 150 faculty who are, are not progressive. Um, uh, but about uh, five days before uh, I was due to start in February of last year, when news of Justice Breyer's retirement broke, uh, I was doing media all day. This is my my area of academic expertise: uh, judicial nominations, the politics thereof. Wrote a book on it called Supreme Disorder. So uh, I was doing media all day. I was thinking about this, and I was getting more and more upset about President Biden's restricting his candidate pool by race and sex. He famously said uh, he'd fulfill his campaign pledge to appoint a black woman. And so uh, late that night, uh, not, a, not, a, not a best practice, I was doom scrolling Twitter and getting further upset and offered up a, a hot take, what's known as, uh, that uh, you know, if I were a Democratic progressive president, I, I would pick Sri Srinivasan, the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, very well respected, very progressive, also happens to be an Indian-American immigrant, so checks some diversity boxes, but according to, as I put it, today's hierarchy of intersectionality, that's not good enough, and if Biden uh, fulfills his pledge, we will end up with 
uh, a, quote, lesser black woman. And it's those three words that really got me in trouble. I meant less qualified than my ideal in, in, in my postulation. Uh, and the whole universe other than Judge Srinivasan would be lesser or less qualified in, in that context. And that's easily identifiable, my meaning there. But uh, my ideological enemies on Twitter uh, used that to um, as, a, as a wedge to, to try to go after me and my job. Uh, that things blew up uh, overnight. Uh, and I'm not so concerned about the online mob, but once things affect the real world and needing to uh, you know, put food on the table for my family and, and all that, it was uh, four days of hell. It was really a, a terrible experience with cancel culture. And then once the dean ultimately, based on both public and private pressure, decided not to fire me, uh, I was onboarded and placed on uh, uh, paid administrative leave uh, pending investigation into whether my social media comments violated university policy on harassment and anti-discrimination. This lasted, this so-called investigation lasted more than four months. I refer to that as the four months of purgatory after the four days of hell. And ultimately, some junior associate at Wilmer Hale, the prestigious, expensive white shoe law firm in D.C. that Georgetown hired to advise them on this, looked at a calendar and uh, determined that I had not been an employee when I tweeted, and so these policies don't apply. So I celebrated that technical victory, uh, but then uh, I got the fine print in terms of the report from the DEI office, uh, which uh, basically said that uh, any such future comment or anything that someone would be offended by would subject me uh, to discipline, would create a hostile educational environment. And after conferring with counsel and Professor Barnett and my wife, who's a better lawyer than all of us, uh, I, I realized I would have to withdraw. And so uh, I made a, a noisy withdrawal, as, as we lawyers put it, uh, uh, put my resignation letter in the Wall Street Journal, as one does, uh, and have been using this moment that I've been thrust into, this platform I've been given, uh, to shine a light on the rot in academia and especially at, at law schools. Well, I know I'd speak for Mark as well in saying how sorry you know, we are that, that you went through this. It's, you know, of course, we're sorry for Ilya Shapiro, uh, the man, but what we're really sorry for is exactly what you're talking about, which is the growing illiberalism, the growing uh, atmosphere, frightening atmosphere of intolerance that exists in in otherwise, you know, schools that are that are outstanding. And of course, the, the victims of this are not simply professors like you or judges. They're the students who don't feel this way. Uh, and I, you know, according to at least the Stanford student in the in the Washington Post, most of her fellow students don't feel this way, but they're afraid. You know, there was a book about uh, about living in Saddam Hussein's Iraq in the 1990s that was called Republic of Fear. You know, it's 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 terrible that we could ever think that that might apply in any way to to our lives. I want to ask you about solutions. Danny, you know, the, the, the closest parallel I've seen, you know, people are hyperbolic of it and it's always a, you know, reductio at, at Nazi or, or, or Stalin or something. But the Chinese cultural revolution is really, I think, the closest parallel where you have struggle sessions to renounce your privilege and recognize your anti-racism and or your eternal racism or, or, or what have you. Uh, and the, the throwing out of the olds, the old values, in this case, the classical liberal values of due process and free speech, et cetera, uh, and even equal protection or equal opportunity uh, in favor of, of equality of, of outcome, um, you know, throwing out uh, actual diversity in, in, in favor of uh, different colored people who all think the same way. Um, that, that's where, where, what, why this is, is so scary. It's this kind of uh, 
Ouroboros that 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 is eating itself, and I don't know where it's it's going to end. There there is tend to, tends to be a, a pendulum effect with these sorts of political movements that go to the extremes. But uh, you know the damage that that's being done, that's already been done, is uh, is not insignificant. So I mean, can you talk a little bit about how this wokeism is affecting the legal profession already? Because you know I know a few years ago there was a huge controversy about the so-called Gitmo Bar and all these law, law firms that were representing Guantanamo detainees. And the left came to the defense of these lawyers saying, you know, that even, even a terrorist needs a lawyer and that this is the job of the legal profession to defend people regardless of what their position is. And you don't, just because you represent somebody doesn't mean you believe in them, et cetera, et cetera. And then fast forward to today, where you got Paul Clement, who's the, who's the former solicitor general, wins a Second Amendment case in the Supreme Court, which any law firm should celebrate the fact that one of its one of its partners won a case in the Supreme Court and is basically told that either you stop defending, you know, pro-gun Americans who are defending their Second Amendment rights or you have to resign. And he was forced to resign. I mean, what, what does that say about the state of the legal profession today before these maniacs are even unleashed on it? Yeah. Or all the law firms feeling pressured to put out statements, uh, at any significant uh, political development, whether it's the election of Donald Trump or the George Floyd murder and subsequent riots or uh, the Dobbs ruling. And there was another case where during an all woman uh, uh, safe space teleconference, uh, a retired partner at at Hogan Lovells, another uh, mega firm, uh, expressed some mildly pro-life views and was was fired, separated from the firm for that. Um, so uh, absolutely, at least anything other than dollars and cents, I guess they all, all these big firms represent, uh, you know, Exxon and, and tobacco manufacturers. So as long as you're not uh, going after their bread and butter in, in that respect, um, you're, you're, you're okay. But there's in, intolerance. And uh, as Danny was saying, uh, the Republic of Fear, a lot of this is driven by the younger lawyers. The partners are afraid of their associates of getting hit with some sort of harassment suit for saying something that's taken as a, a quote-unquote microaggression. And similarly, they, they might say, as happened in Kirkland, Paul Clement's case, uh, they, they said, well, it's not so much our firm, but our clients really are uncomfortable with our representing the Second Amendment uh, pr- protections. Uh, but of course, it's, it's those clients that also feel pressure from their younger employees and younger lawyers. And, you know, you think about, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, uh, would it have been okay for a law firm to say, well, we want to hire you know, black lawyers, but it's our clients. They, they really don't, don't like that sort of thing, so, so we can't do it. Our hands are tied. It's an economic decision. You don't have to scratch the surface very, very much to, to see what's wrong with, uh, with these sorts of uh, developments. All right. So we've talked about the problem. We've illustrated the problem. We've talked about some of the personal aspects of the problem. You and uh, two colleagues at the Manhattan Institute wrote a piece earlier this year about solutions, because I do think that it's very frustrating to complain about wokeism and the costs that it imposes on on our society. There's a lot of room to talk about solutions. And that's, I think, a really smart next step. So tell us a little bit about the piece that you wrote with Matt Weinberg and Christopher Rufo. Yeah, this is a model legislation that proposes to uh, uproot uh, and, and abolish these DEI bureaucracies altogether, at least with respect to public universities. State legislatures have uh, some kind of control. It might differ state to state over public institutions of higher ed. 
uh, and this is separate from dictating uh, what is taught or what's on the curriculum or who can say what in the classroom. There are separate issues, including you know, First Amendment issues with that. This is, is simply about the, how it's governed and the bureaucracy around it and certain structures and processes that are uh, uh, out, outside, beyond the, the instructional level. And so our four-piece proposal after uh, illustrating the, what we've just been discussing, what the problem is, is to get rid of these bureaucracies, which are a net negative uh, to universities, but more broadly, not just a, a, at law schools, even by their own uh, measures, they, they, it seems like students feel less welcome and less comfortable with diversity and less uh, included uh, than, than before the explosion of these DEI offices, which is fairly recent. I mean, maybe in the last five years or so is when you start seeing vice presidents, vice provosts, vice deans of DEI uh, sprouting up all over the place, which huge, huge staffs. Um, so just abolish those offices altogether, although we are very clear and legalistic and lawyerly. I, I do still have a, an active bar license uh, to, to define our terms such that this does not affect uh, anyone who's dealing with compliance with federal or state civil rights laws, the ADA, Title IX, all of that stuff, which someone who was in law school 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, let alone longer, would 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 uh, recognize. It's just this newfangled indoctrination of this illiberal uh, ideology. And then the other parts are getting rid of diversity statements for either hiring or uh, admission, uh, which have become sort of uh, these loyalty oaths, uh, you know, pledges of compelled speech, ideological litmus tests, uh, and so forth. Um, getting rid of uh, preferences for immutable characteristics, uh, not just race, but all, you know, all sorts of immutable characteristics for either admissions or hiring, regardless of what the Supreme Court does uh, in a couple of months with the Harvard and UNC affirmative action challenges. This would be broader than that. Um, and getting rid of uh, mandatory trainings uh, uh, about uh, implicit bias and microaggressions and uh, all of these you know, therapeutic, uh, postmodern, critical legal studies terms um, that that really aren't. Uh, it's not like uh, they're 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 rooting out or changing the minds of hardened Nazis, and all of a sudden they go through these these trainings and and we're all holding hands and singing kumbaya. So these are the four prongs of a legislative package that uh, has been and is being debated at uh, I think about fifteen or eighteen states in varying uh, parts. The Chronicle of Higher Education has a, a useful map tracking this. Uh, but beyond the legislative proposals, uh, there's, as I said, exogenous shocks. Uh, employers, you know, is, is, is an employer really going to be comfortable hiring someone who shouts at a federal judge, as happened to Kyle Duncan at Stanford, uh, we hope that your daughters get raped? Uh, is that something that, that, that an employer welcomes because it's in, for a good cause or, or, or something like that? Uh, or judges. Uh, there are now, I think, 14 or 15 judges, two of them named, two circuit judges, Jim Ho and, and Lisa Branch, uh, uh, who are not prospectively are not going to be hiring students from uh, Yale and Stanford, and maybe they'll be adding more schools to that who, who aren't uh, inculcating uh, uh, First Amendment free speech uh, values. And, and that uh, goes to what uh, the pressure that, that is and should be brought to these schools is supposed to affect. Uh, look, university officials are very good at setting in place the cultures or values that they care about, whether that's public service, whether that's entrepreneurship, uh, DEI, or anything else. Well, they can do that with respect to free speech and civil discourse. And so you mentioned, uh, in terms of one of the consequences of the, the Stanford kerfuffle, that everybody 
not just the disruptors, but everybody kind of collective punishment is going to have to go through this half day uh, free speech training. Uh, well, why, you know, maybe one else when they're when they're about to start should go through that kind of training. And and that message should be reinforced by deans again and again, and not just uh, uh, once there's these flare ups of, uh, uh, of of disruptions. I guess I'm skeptical because if you need to go through that training, you probably shouldn't be in law school in the first place. <laughs> well, it's it's remedial. It's remedial because so many students, so many college graduates, even at at you know top schools that have gotten great grades and great LSAT scores. Although I guess the LSAT it's on is on its way out uh, as well. Another another one of these perverse uh, moves that actually hurts the the people that it's supposed to help. But that's a that's a that's a different story. Um, you know, if if university officials, you know clamp down and say, we're not going to be speech police and we're not going to tolerate disruptions. And, you know, this is a limited public forum. You reserve the space. You can have your speaker, that sort of thing. These things don't happen. Again, University of Chicago, the gold standard, pretty much. Um, the only the only incident in the last 15 years that I can recall, uh, there was a student who thought he saw a loophole in the university's policy and didn't himself or with his peers start disrupting a speech. Uh, but brought in uh, what used to be called outside agitators, so non-members of the of the community of the the academic community, uh, and they disrupted the event. Well, he was ultimately uh, essentially expelled uh, as well. Uh, and we, we just don't have those sorts of things at that school. But there's there's too few places where the deans and and presidents have the backbone to to take that short term what they think of as a hit uh, for the long term benefit of preserving the institutions. Uh, uh, teaching, rule of law, inculcating, uh, truth-seeking mission. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like that's the only way you're ever going to stop this, if you impose consequences on these people and expose them. There's no reason why, you know, when when these people go out into the world and practice law, for the, they are forever Stanford-trained lawyers or Yale-trained lawyers. So the, the university's name is stained by their behavior. And they have to endorse them. They have to endorse them to the bar. They have to endorse them to, you know, with their with their degree. I would think, you know, proposed legislation is great for state schools, but they're not the ones producing most of the clerks and Supreme Court justices and solicitors general uh, in the country. How do we fix these these elite law schools, or are they beyond repair? Well, nine months ago, when I when I left Georgetown and I joined the Manhattan Institute, I had thought we were beyond the point of no return. I thought there was a critical mass. I'm optimistic about. American society writ large as sort of kind of normal people start seeing these weird things going on in our elite cultures. Uh, with Justice Kavanaugh, I live on the sunrise side of the mountain with respect to the country writ large as kind of normal people start seeing some of these weird illiberal excesses and say, that's that's not right. But uh, in academia, maybe, you know, there, there's, there's not any kind of uh, pushback. Uh, but now we're seeing that even one Wall Street Journal op-ed exposing Texas Tech, for example, uh, leads to the president of the institution saying, no, we're no longer going to be hiring biologists because of uh, diversity statements and their commitment to Ibram Kendi's anti-racism and, and things like that. So, you know, again, maybe you know, I think we're in the heart of the storm or in the eye of the storm. We, it's, it's hard to judge exactly what's uh, what's going on. But uh, maybe there could be market forces at play. You don't see these kinds of scandals at Harvard, for one thing. You know, Harvard is about the size of Georgetown. It's huge and it's elite, obviously. Um, you know, at the margins, if more students start going to Harvard rather than Yale or U Chicago rather than Stanford, uh, I think there could be there there could be changes. Well, 
Inshallah, it, there should be changes. And I hope that at least uh, what you've gone through and the work that you're doing will be salutary in, uh, in schools and students and parents and judges thinking and rethinking what's going on. Thank you so much for talking about this with us. You've just been you were awesome. My pleasure. And and for more, check out my Substack, Shapiro's Gavel, uh, as well as my writing on the My Manhattan Institute website. And as I said, writing a book coming out less than a year now from HarperCollins. The working title, I think we finally settled on it, is Canceling Justice, the Illiberal Takeover of Legal Education. Well, I hope you'll come back on when the book is out. We'd love to talk more about it. Okay, Danny, you wanted to go back to this whole issue of DEI hiring. Exactly. So some of our colleagues at AEI have actually done some work on the prevalence of DEI inclusion statements in university hiring. Uh, They went through, really painstakingly, went through 999, I'm not sure why they couldn't do 1,000, but 999 job postings from four-year schools and two-year community colleges in the fall of 2020. Almost 20% of them required a diversity statement. 68% included the terms diversity or diverse in describing their university uh, environment. And postings from elite colleges and universities comprised 28% of the job postings and are 21% more likely to require DEI statements. I mean, (laughs) what has happened? Well, first of all, I would have no problem with this if what they meant by diversity was ideological diversity and diversity of ideas, but that's not what they're talking about. (laughs) They're not talking about that clearly because all the people who are supposedly in favor of diversity, when someone with a diverse viewpoint shows up on campus, they're joining in the mob that's trying to, that's trying to crush them. You know, we've got, we've got to take on this whole DEI ideology because, you know, diversity doesn't mean, this is the problem with the left generally, is what they do is they take words that sound positive, and we've talked about this before, and get people to sign on to them because they don't know what they're talking, what what they really mean. So when they mean diversity, they don't mean diversity, like let's let's have all people of all points of view come together and, and have an open debate. They mean racial diversity, and they mean ethnic diversity. And when they talk about equity, D, the, the E in DEI means equity. Equity sounds great, right? Equity, because everyone believes in equity, right? No, actually, what we believe in is equality, which is equality at the starting line, which is everybody should have a fair shot and be able to rise on the basis of their merit and their work. Oh, wait, merit? You, we don't believe in merit anymore. Merit is racist. <laughs> we, mean, we mean equity, which means equality of outcome. That's a whole different thing. But most Americans, you know, they, they, they choose these words, the left does, on purpose because they sound like the thing that most people believe in, but they mean something else. And so, you know, I'm totally against equity. I'm for equality. I'm for diversity if it means all sorts of people coming together to, to, uh, to, uh, to debate and discuss. I'm not for it if it means racial quotas, and I'm certainly for inclusion if it means inclusion of all points of view, but that's not what they mean. So they really don't believe in diversity, equality, or inclusion at all. No, that's It's, that's it's an ideology that's designed to stamp out and shut down speech and points of view that are inconvenient to the left. So I'm not done with my rant about these numbers, which are unbelievable. So of course, you know, this is a beast that feeds itself, right? If you, if all of these jobs that you listed on LinkedIn require people who demonstrate some commitment to diversity, it's only natural that colleges will start offering 
diversity certificate programs or minors or concentrations <laughs> in diversity studies. So get, get these numbers, guys. LinkedIn data shows between 2015 and 2020, DEI roles increased 71% globally. DEI postings on Indeed had a 123% increase between May and September of 2020. That was during COVID, for God's sakes. I mean, what the hell is going on? <laughs> That's a, that, that would be a good podcast. That would be a good podcast. <laughs> you know, I, re- I remember when we worked on the Center Foreign Relations Committee, I went on a trip to China with some of our colleagues, and we went to a, a car factory, an American car factory in Shanghai. And as we were there, the the American manager of the plant was telling us about how we asked how what is the Chinese Communist Party's role here? And he said, well, actually, you know, every company in China has a, a member of the party who's on site. And, you know, they they're it's sort of like having a really enthusiastic advocate of the Republican or Democratic Party in your office. And I said, and I said to him, Oh, do you have a member of the Chinese Democratic Party here as well? <laughs> and he was sort of didn't appreciate the question. But the point was is that in China you had a ideological commissar whose job at the company was to make sure that nobody stepped out of line with the party ideology. And here, you know, fast forward now, you know, 20, 30 years, and it's the second fastest growing job in America is political commissar. Yep. And there you have it. I mean, that's that's what these people that's, are. Yes. Look, they're, they're political commissars. Their job is to make sure that you, no one in the company steps out of line to provide them with ideological training and to enforce it. And if you do step out of line, to make sure that you're fired. Yeah, And that's every right. company in America is going to have one of these political commissars in our, in our lifetime. Yeah, you got it. Folks, get ready. <laughs> now is the time to wait, get your wait, certificate. Wait, that's it? <laughs> <laughs> We're okay with that? I'm not okay with it, but you know, that's it. it. It's, it's harder and harder to fight it. And that's part of why we're doing this podcast and why we're trying to educate people. So thanks everybody for listening. Let us know what you think. Let us know whether you have a commissar in your office. <laughs> Danny's my ideological commissar. I, I try. I'm, I'm a failed ideological but I'm not, commissar. I'm, not, I'm a very bad student. <laughs> also true. Take care everybody and see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm